Let's find Matthew 24 once again. Matthew 24. If you're just joining us this morning, you are at the tail end of our study through uh, Matthew's Gospel and at the tail end also of our time in the Olivet Discourse of chapters 24 and 25 of Matthew's Gospel. And um, we have been going through Matthew relatively quickly, one to two chapters a week until we got to this portion. Now we've decided to spend just a little more time in it. And uh, this week we're going to be in uh, chapter 24, verse 35, and go all the way through chapter 25 through 30. I know that's a lot to cover. Uh, It won't affect the length of the sermon, it'll be about normal, but we're, those, the reason I'm compressing all that teaching into one week is because it's all teaching the same thing. It's really pointing to the same main points, and so I want to bring that out, and then the next time we're in Matthew's Gospel, we will look at the final judgment uh, in verses 31 to 46. Now, uh, usually what I do is I'll read the passage I'm going to be preaching from, and then uh, we'll pray, and then I'll look at it. But I want to do it a little bit different this week. I'm just going to give a little introduction here, and then um, we're going to read each section as we come to it. And we're just going to go paragraph by paragraph, okay? So I'll pray in just a moment. But just by way of reminder, uh, it's the Olivet Discourse because he's teaching his disciples from the Mount of Olives. You're in the Passion Week where he is facing the crucifixion, and he knows it. And he is preparing his disciples, ultimately, for uh, what lies ahead, which is an inter-Advent age. Do we know what I mean by that? The Advent, is the, the Advent season now we're about to celebrate is the birth of Christ. That begins next Sunday. Next Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent, okay? And we're, we're preparing our hearts to think about the arrival of the Messiah the first time. And what we know is he came the first time to deal with sin, to live righteously, to die on the cross for our sins and be raised again, and to make uh, provision for his people to enter into his forever kingdom. But what the disciples really didn't understand is that there would be this long intervening time between that advent and the second advent we're still waiting for. As a matter of fact, we're at 2,000 year mark now, right? And that would have been unheard of to them. And so he's, he's describing that to them, trying to anyway, Verses 1 and 2, remember he talked about the destruction of the temple that was going to come. That happened in AD 70. Verses 3 through 14, he gives a general description of the age between then and uh, uh, verse 14 when the end comes. Verses 15 through 28, he talks about that abomination of desolation. And we said that specifically, first and foremost, had reference to the uh, invasion of the Romans in AD 70 and very practical application to get out of there when they see that coming, and they destroy the temple, and it's remained destroyed to this day. It's been left desolate. But there probably is going to be a further fulfillment of that in the future, in what most call uh, the Great Tribulation, and even Jesus seems to reference that here. But then he starts to describe, remember, and that's what we looked at last week, verses 29 to 34, ultimately the idea that Now I'll describe to you what it will be like when I do appear in power and glory as a son of man to finally establish my kingdom. So he talks about that at second advent that has not arrived yet. And remember, he set the expectation that it could happen at any time. That's the idea. 
that everything that really ultimately needed to happen to usher in that very quick moving return at the end has happened so that every generation of Christian from that time until now have been anticipating his arrival at any time. His advent could come at any moment. And that leads us to this week's message, which is really teaching us how we are to be waiting for that second advent. He doesn't necessarily get into particulars of how you live your everyday life. You can get more of that in the letters by the apostles later on in your Bible. But this, he's just giving you general idea of how you are to be waiting, knowing that he could return at any time. That idea should affect the way you think about your life here. That's the idea. It should affect the way you live now because you know he could appear at any time. So it's the idea of be prepared, be ready, be faithfully serving until that time. Okay? Now let's pray and then we'll go through these sections. Father, we just ask now as we've come to the preached word, I just pray that you would help me now clear my mind uh, of anything but this passage, please. And uh, gift me uh, to do what I could not do uh, in my own self, but need the gifting of the Spirit to teach and uh, to explain and also to apply. And I pray that everyone here listening would be given uh, the heart to understand really what your word is teaching here and that it would be life-changing for us. That we would be doers of the word, not hearers only, so that we would take what we learned today about how we're supposed to wait and we would apply it into our lives. So help with this, God, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let me show you something here. In verses 36 through, as I said, Uh, Verse 30 of chapter uh, 25, you have these general parables and illustrations of how we're to wait. That's what we're going to look at this week. But notice where we're headed in verse 31 of chapter 25 through verse 46. If you have a Bible with headings over a section, what does it say? The final judgment. Okay. I think part, not part, but fully what we need to have in our mind every single day of our lives is the fact that we are awaiting his return and at his return there will be a judgment. You see that? That is, we will give an account now of our life, our time here on earth. That's very important to understand in understanding this passage. We are waiting, and we're waiting for his return, and there will be judgment. Now, it's clear in the Bible that for those who are in Christ, there'll be no condemnation at that judgment. Okay, that's very clear. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 1. But it is also very clear that there is a form of judgment for believers. And it's to affect the way we live. So 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 and 10. So we are always of good courage, Paul says. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. 
Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, listen, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. When Paul lived, he, whatever he was doing, I'm going to make it now. My aim, my goal in life is to please him. That is God. Because I know this fact, says Paul, that I am one day going to stand before the judgment seat and give an account. Friends, do our lives reflect the fact that we be- really believe that's true? That we really believe that we are going to face Jesus. I mean face to face. And all His glory. And answer questions to Him. And give an account. See, I'm setting it with that because there is a real soberness about this whole passage that we're looking at. And Jesus uses language in some of these that when it gets to the actual ones that were found that weren't prepared, that weren't ready, that weren't being faithful, the, the, the punishment for them is so, almost in some cases, grotesque. You'll see this. So that we get the idea in our minds that this is serious business. Life is not all fun and games and entertainment, Right? Life is, has a seriousness to it because we're going to face Christ. And I think that's the idea. So in keeping with that, as we're looking through these, we're to be ready, be watching, be faithful, be serving the Lord. That comes out very clear in places like verse 42, therefore stay awake or be watchful, could be either way, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Verses 44 to 45, Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant, etc. We're ready, we're watching, we're anticipating, and we're faithfully serving, knowing that when he returns we'll see him face to face, and yes, we will give an account, and that brings a certain seriousness about our daily life, doesn't it? Well, let's begin walking through these. Verse 35 on its own. Verse 35 means we are to be confidently waiting for Jesus to return. Look at that verse. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. We looked at that a few weeks ago, and Jesus was claiming really divine authority in his words. Remember, because in Isaiah it says, well, the, the, flower, uh, the grass of the field withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. And Jesus is saying, my words stand forever. And in this context, what he's saying is everything I just told you about my return, that will happen. That's his idea of saying it will happen. Don't let it throw you off if there's thousands of years delay and you're sitting here saying, where is he? Where is he? It's been 2,000 years. Where is he? Maybe he's not coming. No, he's saying don't, don't, let, don't fall into that trap. This will happen. My words will not pass away. They will come to pass. You can bank on it. So we then as his people are going to be confidently waiting for Jesus to return, right? 
We have that biblical hope, and hope is not wishful thinking in the Bible. Hope is confident expectation of future good. And in this case, it means confidently expecting Jesus to appear at any time. And so we're ready. We're faithfully serving him. That's the idea. And then in verses 36 to 40, he gives, he gives what is a surprising description of the days prior to his appearance. It's a surprising description of the days prior to his appearance. Look at verse 36. We'll begin there. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will become the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. They were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left, you see. First in verse 36 and verse 44, really he makes it clear that no one knows the day and hour of his return. It is futile and silly to make a projection of a date. It is unbiblical. It is heretical. Denominations have tried to do this. Individuals have tried to do this. They treat prophecies in the scripture like some puzzle they got to put together and they, there's codes in there. If you can just get the codes right, you can then project when it's coming. That's completely the antithesis of what Jesus is teaching his disciples here. There's no clue you're looking for, all right? And no one knows when he will return. He didn't even know when. We talked about that mind-boggling truth of the full deity of Christ and humanity and in his humble state had ignorance of something and admitted that. Now humble that was. But you say, well, Jesus says, though, as were the days of Noah will be the coming of the Son of Man. So if we could just nail that down, maybe we could figure out what would be the condition of everything when he returns. And then we would know. So the question is, what were those days like? Well, Jesus answers that in the text, doesn't he? He says they were like this. Ready? People were eating and drinking. Okay. They were starting families, getting married, planning for the future. They were working and providing for their families, like, you know, grinding at the mill and out in the field, doing everyday tasks, just whatever the day required, even thinking about what the future would be. You know, I've officiated a handful of weddings, it's my privilege to do so, but in every one, you talk about the future. They're planning as though, hey, you're going to be married for maybe 50 years if you're young enough, 50, 60 years, and we're thinking about this, and you're going to start a family. That's what you're thinking about when you get married, right? You're not just thinking about that day. You're thinking about the future. That's what it would be like. In other words, there's no way to identify it. It's not an extraordinary time. Oh, these are the days of Noah. No, it's a very ordinary time. And people were just going about their business until the flood came. That's the idea. And the idea is this for us, that the judgment is coming. And people live their lives as though there is no judgment coming. 
And people just do what they do that day and they make plans for the future and then all of a sudden, suddenly, out of nowhere comes the judgment. Friends, these weren't extraordinary days before Noah. They were very ordinary days. There's no particular signs to be watching. There's ultimately no need for prophecy watches. We don't need that kind of ministry. Just know it could happen at any time, you see. Just whenever there are things that are normal, like now, know that it could happen now. That's Jesus' whole point. You don't know and won't know, so be ready the whole time, right? And be faithfully serving the whole time. By the way, just uh, a thought about the idea of Jesus' comparison with Noah and the ark and the coming judgment. Remember, that was all due to judgment for sin on the world, right? And there was only one way of escape. Get in the ark. We have an ark we need to be in when the, when the judgment comes and his name is Jesus, you see. This is why in Psalm chapter 2 it says, Blessed are all those who take refuge, what? In him. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. That's our ark. So when you embrace Jesus by faith, you can just envision it like being in the ark so when the judgment comes, the wrath of God passes over you, so to speak, and you're safe in the judgment. So repent then of your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ, your only, only hope of salvation. There was nobody during the days of the flood that delivered themselves by climbing a tree or hiding in their home, or doing any other number of things, the judgment came and they were swept away. That's the whole point. Be ready for when the judgment comes. And then in verses 43 to 44, he gives the illustration of the informed homeowner. Verse 43, But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake, would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. You know, it's a common thing among thieves that when they're going to break into your house, they usually don't shoot you a text letting you know what time they're coming. Why? Because if you did that, they know you'd be ready and you wouldn't allow them. And this is, of course, where the teaching about, that we'll look at it maybe if we have time, a passage where Paul talks about Jesus coming as a thief in the night, you see? It's the element of surprise and unexpectedness. It's an unannounced time. And his whole point is, you must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. It's the illustration of the informed homeowner. And then in verses 45 to 51, this is an illustration and really a contrast of a faithful and wise servant and an unfaithful and foolish servant. Two ways in which you can be ready. You can be faithful and wise serving or foolish. That's what he's doing here. Look at verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. 
But if that wicked servant says to himself, well, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Notice first that here we have the waiters, okay, the people waiting for the master return, we have them doing something, actually entrusted with responsibilities. They're servants. The Greek word is doulos, could be translated slaves. They are owned by this master and he has left and they have responsibilities they must faithfully carry out. And really, I think, Jesus wants us in this inner Advent time to see us as possessed and owned by Him with responsibilities, each one of us now, with responsibilities we must carry out in service to Him, being prepared for when He returns, and then we must give an account. If we don't see ourselves as slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we're going to see ourselves as servants of ourselves. And when a person sees themselves as a servant of themselves, they're going to live for themselves. They're going to do what makes them happy, what brings them fulfillment. They're going to have their own dreams and ambitions that are really apart from any thought of how Jesus might think about what they're doing or what he might want them doing in their lives. You see the difference? This is why Paul, in one of his letters, and James They both refer to themselves in the intro of their letter. They say, Paul, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. James did the same thing. James, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, that's how he viewed himself and that's how he wanted you to view him. My life is about living for the Lord Jesus Christ. I belong to him now. And I think that's one of the main things coming off of this. Serving. This Servant has been entrusted with responsibilities he must faithfully carry out until his master returns, verse 45. The one his master finds actually serving and doing and being faithful when he returns is a blessed servant. And then in verse 47, interestingly, verse 47 uh, says, Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. It's the first time he hints at the fact that there'll be more blessed service for him to do in the age to come. That in the age to come, we're still going to be serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And where you're stationed, so to speak, in there, and the blessing you get as far as serving Him largely depends on what you do now. Can you see already how the way you live now affects your eternity? It matters. That's why Paul will conclude his letter with something to the effect of, you know, Keep serving the Lord because your service to Him is not in vain. Keep laboring. It's not in vain. It matters forever, you see. It's not just temporary. Important, by the way. Serving the Lord is to be done in joy. That's the whole point of being rewarded with more service to the Lord, right? Is that this is a joyful thing, not that we go, what, I got to do more now? I mean, I'll be faithful now in serving him, but I don't want to serve then. No, the idea is we're to be joyful in this so that that's actually a blessing. I'm going to be blessed with more service to him. See, if you're serving the Lord in any capacity and it has ceased to be a joy to you, you need to stop immediately. 
And you need to get your heart right. And by doing the, the way to do that, let me tell you, very simply it is, you just stop serving in that capacity and you look right at the gospel and you stare at it and you stare at Jesus in his serving of you by living and dying for you until that breaks your heart and melts your heart and you're saying, okay, now send me back into service. I'll serve in any capacity. You want me, Jesus. And if we lose sight of that gospel and Jesus' fact that he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life and ransom for many. If we lose track of the service of Jesus for us, then we lose focus on the joy of serving. But anyway, the illustration seems easy enough to understand. We see ourselves as servants of the Lord. He's entrusted us with responsibilities. Maybe verse 45, as he's set over his household, maybe indications that our primary service or one of our primary services is to the other people of God, that we are to serve them in love, and, but that certainly doesn't negate all the rest of the service we are to be doing and seeing all of our lives, including our secular employment and things we do as serving the Lord. I get all that. But then there's a transition in tone, isn't there, in verses 48 to 50, with the wicked servant. And what did he do? He said to himself, My master is delayed. His return hasn't come as soon as I thought it would. He's growing weary of waiting, really. And what does he do? He begins to beat his fellow servants. He begins living a debauched lifestyle and drunkenness and everything that goes with it and just goes into the world. He took his mind off the idea that, that this world was not his or her home he took his mind off the fact that Jesus was going to return again and turned it into the things of this world. And when the Lord returned, he was judged in the most severe way. Verse 50 again, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect them in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. By the way, putting him with the hypocrites, that's an important uh, point. What's a hypocrite? A hypocrite is one who's pretending to be something he or she is not. They're putting on a mask, which is indicative, I think, of the fact that within the church, within the professed community of God's people, there are people who are merely pretending, going through the outward acts of what they're supposed to do, but inwardly, they are not truly God's people. Perhaps a servant is one of those and gets put with them. Friends, if nothing else, these illustrations and parables of Jesus really call for serious self-reflection, don't they? I mean, it just makes you pause and say, I want to make sure. If I, I don't want to be cut in pieces and thrown in outer darkness with the hypocrites. I want to make sure that I'm in Christ. I want to make sure that I'm the faithful and wise servant, you see. And if that's what it makes you do, that's exactly the point. That's why Jesus does it, in love. So that each person that reads this or hears a message on it would pause and reflect and question, are you ready for his return? And friends, that's not something I can answer for you. You can't answer for me. That's something you've got to go to God with. Spend some serious time with God. Am I ready for your return? Which one am I? Who am I? What will I hear, you see? What will I hear when you return, Jesus? You want to make sure you're on the right side of that. 
Then in chapter 25, verse 1 through 13, it's, of course, the parable of the ten virgins. Let's read that. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Now, five of them were foolish and five were wise. Here we have a contrast again, don't we? For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Now, you have to have a little bit of an understanding of the culture of the time and the marriage festivities surrounding that first century Jewish tradition. Uh, As a kid, and I'll say this for the kids and young people in the room, um, I always thought about these, these ten virgins, by the way, which is just an understanding of uh, women of marriage, married, marriable age in this context, and they were in the bridal party. This guy isn't marrying ten young women, okay? I often thought about that as a kid. I was like, wow, that's really unusual, and even though Jesus is promoting this practice, I don't know, but no, they're part of the bridal party, and the tradition was the bride and the bridal party would be waiting. They didn't know when now, the groom and his family and the groomsmen were going to come get them and bring them to this wedding feast. It would go down something like that. And it was very public procession through the street there in these Galilean towns and such and bringing them. And then they would come and get the, the bride and the bridegroom, bring them back to the house. Could happen in the middle of the night as apparently it was here. And so they had to be ready by having their lamps all ready and being prepared for when they heard his voice. Then they could all jump up and run out. So the five uh, wise virgins were ready when he appeared. They had all the oil for their lamps that they needed. So when they heard the cry of the bridegroom, it was a joyous celebration, right? And they're, all right, it's finally come now, and we're going to go off to this wedding feast and to this celebration. They grab their lamps, and off they go. Unfortunately, the other five were foolish. And really what made them so foolish is that they knew he was coming, Now, they didn't know when, but they knew he was coming at an unexpected time, and it could be at any time. You see the idea? It could just be at any time, so they needed to be ready, but even though they knew he was coming, they just didn't make provision to be ready. They weren't prepared. They didn't have the oil they needed, so when he came, of course, they jump up in a panic, and they go to the wise virgins and say, let us have some of the oil from your lamps, and of course, they're saying, I can't do that. I can't share this with you. I need it, because I've This is what I need to go get into this wedding party. And so they're trying to go buy it, but it's too late, of course. And the door is shut on them, and they're not allowed access. As a matter of fact, he says to them, I do not know you. Terrifying words. Jesus has already used in one judgment illustration back in Matthew chapter 7. Terrifying words. They're not being allowed entrance into presumably what that is of course is his forever kingdom do you ever pause to ask yourself am i prepared for us coming a lot of people speculate what is the oil doesn't really matter that's not the point 
The oil is whatever one needs to be prepared for the arrival of the, bri- uh, the bridegroom. Whatever was needed. So, like the Bible tells you, that in order to be saved, you need to have a living faith and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ and not be trusting in anything else. Do you have that? What are you trusting in? I mean, the Bible tells us that you have to be born again. Jesus said it very clearly in John chapter 3. You must be born again or you cannot see or enter the kingdom of heaven. To be prepared then would be one who is born again by God. A new creation, Paul calls him. Having been given the new heart of the new covenant. So the question is, has that happened to you? Have you been born again? The Bible tells you that you have to have your sins forgiven in order to enter into the kingdom. The question is, friends, have your sins been forgiven? And we could go on and on with a number of things that deal directly with, am I saved? Am I prepared? Am I ready? You know what the problem with the world in which we live in is we give very little thought to eternal matters. And some people come up in church and kids grow up in church and they're like, oh yeah, I dealt with that, you know, five years ago at VBS and I prayed this prayer and so I'm good to go. And then they go about their lives with no thought, ultimately, of Christ or God or eternity. And so when they're asked, it's just a very quick answer. Oh yeah, I'm ready. How do you know? I prayed. I remember, I remember when I prayed a prayer. Do you think that's what Jesus is getting people to ask here? Or is it more, you need to do some soul searching here. Am I prepared for his coming? Because what's clear in these parables is that once it happens, it's too late to do anything about it. There's no going back. And it's not just at his appearing. Many of you, if he doesn't, think about it, if he doesn't even return in this short generation, all of us will face death. And the Bible says it is appointed a man once to die and then the judgment. There's no other chance then. The deal is sealed. The time was there for you to ensure you are one of Christ and to repent of your sins and trust in Him. And that time is gone. And forever and ever and ever, there will never be another opportunity to reverse that. How sobering is that? Isn't that weighty? This is eternity we're dealing with here. Give this some thought. The final parable, of course, in verses 14 to 30 is a parable of talents. Let's just read that, verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and he made five talents more. So also he had the two talents, made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, You delivered to me two talents. 
Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And on my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In this parable, of course, you have a man, a very wealthy man, with servants and a lot of money who went on a journey. Obviously, this man represents Jesus in this parable. And he entrusted his property to his servants, who we are presuming are professing followers of Christ. He gave to each one a measure of his talents. Now, a talent was a monetary unit worth about 20 years' wages for the labor. So it's a bunch of money. They would call that a talent, that amount of money. And he entrusted a whole bunch of it. It tells us how wealthy he was, okay? And he entrusted one five and one two and one one. And it didn't really matter how much he entrusted to them. He just gave according to their ability. So he weighed that out justly and said, you could be... Trusted with this much, you can be trusted with this much, you can be trusted with this much and such. The first two, of course, go and multiply their talents. They invested. Even took risk, if you will, because anytime you invest money, there's a risk involved, but they risked it for the sake of their master to produce fruit, to multiply their talents that they could have not for themselves, but to give to him when he came back, you see. But the other one didn't do that. The one who had received one talent hid it and then had the audacity to look his master in the face and said, I didn't do this because of you. I know what you're like and I don't trust you. I hid it in the ground and I knew you were a, a hard taskmaster and demanding and so I hid it in the ground. And so, of course... He was condemned and went away into, verse 46, eternal punishment. Again, very powerful, isn't it? I think the overall message of this parable is that Jesus entrusts us with various aspects of ministry to and for him and the true believers then will utilize those and go about multiplying those talents. In other words, there's a, there's a place that we're going to look at. Of course, we always talk about this idea of justification that we're saved by faith alone. But what Jesus is making clear is that true faith is never alone. True faith always results in works, in serving, in being faithful, in enduring to the end. So that, listen, those who aren't 
faithfully serving the Lord and seeing their life as one of ministry to Him and out investing for the kingdom and serving Him. Those who aren't doing that should have no expectation of being led into the kingdom even if they prayed a prayer and were assured that that prayer got them into the kingdom. That the results of their life and the way they lived would be the evidence of salvation. This is what James is talking about when we're justified, not by faith only, but by works. In the sense of this, that faith by that works that you're doing, that serving of the master, the display of fruit and the living in righteousness, that's showing you have true faith. Otherwise, it's just a dead faith, an empty profession. Very important for us to see especially those of us who love the doctrines of grace and the doctrine of justification. I was thinking about this because I, I just love that period of history as that was emerged and Martin Luther, and I love that doctrine. And yet there is a part of that that what can happen then is you don't give any thought to the judgment or giving an account. You're not thinking as much about how you live. There is a danger in that. And so what we want to do is make sure we take the words of Jesus and apply them appropriately into our lives. Is there any resultant fruit of your profession in Christ? Are you living for Him? Are you laying up? Remember, you already talked about this back in Sermon Mount. Are you laying up your treasures on earth? Or are you laying up your treasures in heaven? Are you seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness or seeking first the things of this world? That's a good indicator of where you are and what you're going to hear in the end. Friends, let me just leave this. I'm bringing it to a conclusion now and I want to bring the gospel to bear, okay, to this. Because I want everybody who's in Christ to be encouraged and I want those who aren't to be turning from their sin and putting their trust in Christ. Here's the good news. You ready for good news? All right, Jesus was the true, good, and faithful servant. Jesus is the one who faithfully served his master every moment of his life without failure. And he is the true and good and faithful servant of his master and of you who went to the cross, gave his life as a ransom to pay for all of our spiritual laziness and apathy and failures and sins and failures to serve as we should or invest as we should. He did that for us so that, friends, we could see that, trust in Him, be forgiven of our sins, right? So we know that if you're sitting here right now and you're like, man, my mind has just gotten so much in this world, I've just lost track of the fact that I'm to be living for the world to come. And I need to change my thinking. You don't need to be in despair. You need to feel that conviction and then say, God, thank you for showing me this. I repent. Please forgive me. I look to Christ. And then as you look to Christ, then find the motivation now as His to pick up now and put all that out there behind you and start saying, okay, right now then, what do I got to do today to be faithfully serving my Savior, the one who has purchased for me by His own Life and blood, eternal life. The joy of my master that I will get to experience forever. Now I'm ready, when I see that clearly, to be living for him now. Let it motivate you. 
And I'll leave us with the words of John, 1 John 2, verse 28 and 29. He says, now, little children abide in him. That's important just to make a connection here. In John 15, Jesus said, abide in me and I in you. If you abide in me, uh, ask what you wish and it'll be done for you. That passage. And he says something effective. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Well, how do you abide in the love of Christ? That, that experience of his blessing and smiling upon you is through the keeping of commandments. See the connection there? Faith resulting in that connection? All right. Now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we know what we're talking about there, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Think about that. That's what Jesus is trying to get across. Don't you want to be confident when he returns? I certainly don't want to be doing something I shouldn't be doing. Right? You certainly don't want to be engaged in any kind of sinful activity that you know is wrong so that when he appears, what shame there will be, you see. But we want to be prepared and ready and being faithful so that when he comes, we hear it. We hear it from Jesus. Can you imagine the joy of this? Let this be your motivation, partly. The joy of hearing him look at you and say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Well done. Wouldn't you like to hear that? He's assuming we would. (laughs) That's why he's telling us this. So that we will be prepared and be watching and be faithfully serving until he returns. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words from Matthew 24 and 25 that help us align our priorities in a distracting world. So I pray that you encourage us now, motivate us, and let us see Jesus so that we will be faithfully serving him and will experience the blessing of being prepared and being a faithful servant for when he comes. We ask this in his name. Amen.